do you think a phd is a validation for creating solutions in ai join us to find out my name is alfred ongere and this is the ai kenya podcast the ai kenya podcast powered by what's good studios so in this current day and age you don't need a phd in computer science or artificial intelligence to create solutions in ai our guest today is a true testament to that so babu sinyoni welcome to today's episode thank you very much uh so i think we could start by you introducing yourself uh, all right who is babu sinyoni for those people who don't know you got it uh, my name is Babu Sinyoni and I am an AI innovator based in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Um, but I grew up in Zimbabwe in a town called Wilawio and um, my highest level of education is high school. Um, I went to a public school there. I have been working um, in artificial intelligence since 2014 mm-hmm. and um, I'm also um, for the duration of this week um, in Kenya, speaking about how we can open up the AI industry for what are termed the forgotten uh, bottom billions. Okay, so tell us, tell us more about what what you've just had uh, in terms of the AI tour. What, what does that involve, and what's the main goal around that? All right. Um, so how this started was that in uh, April early this year, I met with. Um, a former county minister, um, Honorable Mike Onyango, at Oxford University. Mm-hmm. And we had a brief chat about where the technology was headed uh, in terms of the African context. Mm-hmm. And he invited me to come to Kenya to speak um, to those who feel that they don't have a place to uh, participate in the current technological zeitgeist. Um, and Z- zeitgeist. What, what, what does that mean? The zeitgeist is the era. Um, it's 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 the it's the defining era. Uh-huh. Um, and the reason why I am doing this is because I'm also someone who doesn't come from uh, a well-off background. Um, I was telling the kids early on today that I actually used to carry ugali um, and tea to school. Um, so it's just giving them an understanding of what is possible. Okay. within artificial intelligence so basically you you are going around schools uh giving talks a- around uh, artificial intelligence and sort of how people can get started in it exactly okay that's that's interesting so y- you just mentioned that uh you are an, an ai innovator so tell us about some of the projects or some of the work you've done around ai all right um in 2016 i created an artificially intelligent football commentator and then later on in that year, um, I created a prototype for the prediction of Africa's next refugee crisis using artificial intelligence. And um, in 2018, um, I taught a robot how to make a subgenre of a South African um, house music um, category. And um, later on in that year, I created an app that allows uh, users to parameterize and rate a popular South African dance move known as the Voshaw. Mm. And um, in um, early uh, 2019, I created a prototype for the early diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. Oh, those those are quite some interesting projects. Thank you. And could could you start with the football commentator? So, what exactly was it trying to do or trying to achieve? All right. Um, so this football commentator was done um, 
on behalf of the MNC Sachi Able Agency in South Africa. It's one of the largest um, agencies there. Mm-hmm. And this was done for Heineken Global. And essentially what it was, was a way for Heineken fans online to interact with a real-time football commentator um, in a manner that seemed natural and fluid. And how we did this was we taught um, this model how South Africans on Twitter um, interacted with social media whenever a football match was on. Mm -hmm. So the emotional spikes when a a yellow card is awarded unfairly, when a penalty is awarded, when a substitution is made for a player that the crowd might not like. These were all moments that the model learned to react to. And for the duration of the Champions League final, it interacted with fans across the spectrum on Twitter. I remember actually the match went into extra time. Um, but that that was essentially the goal of it. And the engagement uh, for that was the highest that Heineken had ever seen. Okay, interesting. And how how was all this working so sort of what was the input and what was the was oh. the output for the for the commentator to work got it um so basically what we did was we um searched twitter for tweets that occurred during football matches specifically mm-hmm. in south africa and then also specifically in english because that was a language that was the highest occurring of all the tweets that we saw yeah and we fed this into a model and ran um, a technique uh, called natural language processing, which allowed us to uh, understand the sentiment and also understand the context of these words that we scraped from the internet yeah. to allow this model then to be able to make computations on what to say based on what it is understanding. Okay. Yeah. And now talking about the, how was the response to this solution? So did people really know they were talking to and um, sort of a robotic commentator or they didn't realize that? Um, So before the campaign started, we had to be transparent for legal reasons. uh, So people knew that they were interacting with something that was autonomous in the unlikely event, because this was just after Microsoft had that Tay scandal. Mm -hmm. So in the unlikely event that the, and this was because of the client's concerns, in the unlikely event that the bot went rogue, we needed uh-huh. to indemnify uh, Heineken Global. Um, yeah. But um, apart from that, people, of course, forgot that and they would tweet without even mentioning the hashtag that was necessary to trigger the action because it just felt like something that they were doing with someone who was in active participation. Okay. Yeah. And were there any key sort of interesting insights or new things you learned from the interactions of humans with this with uh, that. agent? Um, I would say... It was, um, so Twitter on its own as a platform in South Africa is not the biggest. Mm -hmm. Um, So the data that we got from there could have been bigger if it was on a much broader platform that people would have been communicating on, but then also the behavior would not have been the same. Um, But an interesting thing that I did learn um, outside of the way the machines interacted with uh, the people was the need to cater for every edge case because edge cases um, such as in our case when extra time became penalties. Yeah. You know, that was something that we definitely hadn't thought about as far. Yeah. Um, so once that happened, yeah, uh, <laughs> we were caught with our pants down. Okay, interesting. Yeah. And uh, so about the other solution you, you talked about, the the dance app. Yes. What, what does that involve? Um, so the dance app is uh, part of a series of AI experiments that I ran last year to try and understand 
the limits of artificial intelligence when applied in the African context, mm -hmm. and then also trying to localize as much as possible bleeding edge technology to try and make it as accessible to as wide an audience. And how this worked was um, there's a South African dance move known as the Voshaw. And what um, this uh, app does is it parameterizes and uh, gives a weighted score whenever this dance move is performed. Yeah. And what it does that through is it gives an estimation of various points of your body right in your browser in real time. So when you perform that dance move, we have a formula that looks at the speed at which you've done it mm -hmm. and the relative position of your limbs as well. And then it gives you a score out of 100. And maybe for, for those of us who don't know how the virtual sort of <laughs> dance looks like. So, so is yeah. it a full body dance or is it just yes. half part of your body? So the virtual is essentially this dance move that is used as an exclamation point mm -hmm. in, a, in a dance routine. And basically what you do is you'll be upright one moment and then the next you are... Uh, basically, uh, in a in a very acute squat on the ground, body with your with your body upright, okay. right? So you drop to the floor really quickly, and then you come back up really quickly again. Mm -hmm. It sounds easy, but what it does to your knees is it's <laughs> yeah, it's pretty intense. It gives you a bit of damage. Yeah, it does, <laughs> and I can attest to that. And so you, so the app was sort of trying to rate how well someone was performing this exactly. Dance. Ah, okay. Yes. And so, how? Wh what did you learn from this, or um, in terms of insight, or in terms of challenges? Something new that you didn't know would happen. Yeah. Um, so when we launched the app, it was something that we knew would generate a buzz, but then it also wasn't something whose buzz was generated at us because it was a social interaction app. Mm -hmm. The only time we ever heard back from users of the app was when they wanted to complain that they were unfairly rated and how they performed poorly <laughs> uh, compared to someone else who they yeah. knew had, um, wasn't able to do um, as well as they did. Um, but a cool insight that we gained was that there was a general, genuine willingness to interact with new technology, especially in South Africa, which um, has the highest levels of uh, economic inequality, yeah. but a willingness to interact with new technology as long as there was a context for it. So there were people who were using uh, this app on super cheap devices, including uh, ones that cost about 25 US dollars, like super, super low, low-end smartphones. Mm -hmm. And they're running these extremely high computations with um, computer vision that is running in your browser. Mm -hmm. And all they care about at that point is the score that the Avosha is going to be, right? Yeah. So um, with those learnings in mind, uh, we decided to see if there was something more impactful and uh, a better contribution to um, to society that we could do with the Vosha Dance app. And the, the competition was happening on the device or it was happening on the cloud? It was happening on the device. So this was possible through the introduction of uh, Google's TensorFlow JavaScript library. Yeah. And uh, what this allows you to do is to run um, machine learning computations directly in the browser and in real time so you can train models in real time in a browser mm -hmm. and um, this was something that had that had just been released um, and we just hopped onto it and tried to find a use case for it okay yeah. so a typical sort of case in terms of how someone uses the app um, so they, they would go to a browser 
or yes. just yes. take me through the steps yes. maybe. so we just had a link and it was actually really interesting how people kept asking where do I download right because that's the behavior that we yes. know when it comes to things that require more of an effort than just filling in a form yeah but um, there was no need to download anything you just go into the browser uh, a definite limitation that we had was for example Apple's um, uh, gated um, app ecosystem when it comes to access to device sensors like cameras and cameras, microphones. Yeah. So uh, there was a major drop-off when people opened the app in in-app browsers on Twitter and Facebook, for example. But we did have dialogue in there to try and push them to open in a browser, but that on its own is it's another step. Yeah. But yeah, um, so actually the, the case for and against an app or a web app is one that might actually be explored there because um, it might have been more beneficial to just have an app to download and not have to worry about okay. app ecosystems. Yeah. So still tying to the question in terms of um, the um, the steps when someone is trying to use the app. So yeah. is there a certain position you need to put it or how, how do you go about um, using it? You just open uh, the website. There's a there's a tutorial thing if you want to watch a YouTube video to understand mm -hmm. how to perform the Voshaw. Mm -hmm. um, you are told to keep just one subject um, in, in the, the frame, in the viewport, um, yeah. because you, any other subject will then mess up the the parameter computations. Um, and yeah, that was basically it. We just tried to make it as as quick as possible. There's a major call to action button on there. You already see the camera in in, in the user interface so you just want to get that for sure rated and how how did you later sort of come to um apply this particular solution in a different case um so understanding what we uh discovered about the willingness that people had to use this technology yeah. um just because of the context we i think in in in, in partially we felt a little guilty that we're using this technology for such a frivolous thing. Yeah. So what we did was we looked for other implementations of pose estimation or at least some pose parameterization yeah. that might have a, a much deeper impact than just some social interaction app. And we found that uh, Parkinson's disease is a disease whose diagnosis involves largely symptomatic observations. And so what, what is Parkinson's disease? Parkinson's for those who don't know, is a disease that um, basically affects your motor skills. Mm -hmm. um, you you can typically identify someone who has Parkinson's disease by the way that they walk. You know, sometimes we just say it's old age and someone's walking, but it's Parkinson's disease is a disease that um, essentially it affects the curvature of the spine. It affects your gait as you walk. People actually walk with a shuffle. Yeah. Their arms are stiff as well as they walk, and it's you know. Um, I'm just going to digress a little bit. I learned recently that um, getting chicken pox was not a rite of passage, that yeah. they are actual <laughs> vaccines. Yeah. But growing up, that it was... Prevent yeah. That. Yeah, <laughs> I so didn't know that. Yeah, but there's things that we just socialize and accept. Yeah. But Parkinson's is an actual disease um, that starts to affect the body in, in the way I just described. Okay. Yeah. So how how is the, the app relatable to... Uh, Parkinson's disease and how did you arrive at sort of applying right. it to Parkinson's disease? So um, upon understanding that the diagnosis um, of Parkinson's disease involved um, symptomatic observation, yeah. we uh, having a 
developed an understanding of how to estimate um, poses and also parameterize them and then also assess movement um, and also speed. Yeah. We uh, then took uh, that similar approach and then started to parameterize um, the distance between a subject's legs as they walked mm -hmm. and then also the rigidity of their torso. So if you're moving laterally, um, we also assessed uh, whether or not your arms were moving in a way that was relational to the way your feet were walking. And then we also assessed your posture. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're walking with a slight stoop, it was something that would be added into the parameters. And then um, because this symptomatic observation needs to occur over a period of time, yeah. we would store the initial assessment in the local storage and then you'd have two um, sequential um, assessments thereafter yeah. um, and then there, uh, after uh, only after the third one would we then be able to make a recommendation as to whether or not you should see a medical practitioner. And so this would be used in let's say a medical center or this is a solution I can download an app yes. or just go to a web app and just use it at home. So so the goal with this, and uh, I think the use case might change, but the idea was to um, help people who might not have immediate access to healthcare, yeah. right? but who might um, need... So this is, of course, um, the number of people who will feel, wait, let me see if there's an app I can download. To yeah, it's, it's extremely low. But this was looking at an instance where we might have people who have limited access to healthcare, but it's definitely something that might go on the other side of the counter and be used by healthcare practitioners. Okay. Yeah. And are there any challenges you faced while working on, let's say, all your projects in general, the artificial intelligence projects? Um, data will definitely be one. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, time is also a major one. So the reason why I'll mention time is because I do these things outside of my actual day job. Yeah. Um, so the time I can afford um, things like the Parkinson's diagnosis app is something that I did once and then I just parked it. Whereas I could have really, I can really develop it into something. Yeah. Um, uh, time and data. Um, I think when it comes to the actual technology itself, um, we're, uh, in, at this point of accepting limitations uh, really quickly mm -hmm. and understanding that um, results generated from machine learning computations might not always be 100% correct. So um, I always take the, the outcomes with a, a grain of salt and I'm okay with that. Um, but yeah, it's getting the data to be able to actually do so is, is a major major hustle and for someone like you who whose highest level of education i'd say is hi, uh, high school graduation yes. um what would you say what has been the experience like in terms of innovating in in ai are there very very big gaps or is it is it something you learn sort of on the go yeah um I will speak um, mainly about my my career and how that's played a major role in my involvement in the, with artificial intelligence. Yeah. Um, there's uh, a large number of campaign types that I wanted to run uh, at the agency I worked at, but because I was the only person who understood how that technology worked, 
and then also the only person who had no university education and many times as well the only person of color in rooms where these things were discussed Mm -hmm. it was very hard for people to accept that the things i was saying were things that exactly right so when i started doing my own personal experiments so with the uh, prediction of forced migration in africa that was something that i did outside of the need for some kind of um organizational hierarchy and validation mm-hmm. because the the quickest path to market when it comes to innovation is one that doesn't require buy-in from multiple partners yeah yeah and are, are there any other sort of work that you're doing in terms of um trying to educate other people in ai let's say back in your country or yes area? um so uh, uh a thing that's always um, been just nagging me um, was uh, the fact that as someone who didn't go to university, uh, who's managed to make a career out of just being able to think in a very agile manner, yeah. I haven't been really uh, strong in replicating that kind of um, approach to, to work and, and all that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so last year, I took a step in that direction and I launched uh, something called the Uluazi Accelerator with um, a guy called Sean Lovu in Bulawayo. Mm. And what this is, is um, it's a program that takes people who have um, some level of education, but a high level of interest in artificial intelligence. And uh, for a two-month period, they take this... Um, curriculum that allows them to advance your skills at least gain a basic understanding Mm -hmm. and what we do is we also provide them with um, food every single day that they come and also with transport so they really only focus on the educational part of it Mm -hmm. and then um, the outcome of that is upon completing um, the the program we put them on paid work with this newly acquired skill so that this is something that they can take to other places and is the program has it already started? Are there people have completed? Yes. Uh, so the first cohort um, uh, was last year, um, I think, in the summer, um, and of the twenty-eight um, applicants uh, mm-hmm. who started the course, only one made it to the end. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And and why why is that? <laughs> is is um, there a huge knowledge gap in terms of the? prerequisite skills that someone needs to do this or in your case what what was the main problem i think the main problem was the assumption that the willingness to learn would be equal to the willingness to actually do the work necessary to get up to the point at which you 100 percent know the thing yeah um and people would start out especially with things that you make accessible right people have this idea that it might be easier than it actually is Mm -hmm. so i think with those who started out they might have thought that it might be something that requires a minimum level of of dedication to and then along the way they learned that they were probably not cut out for it yeah um but it was also a major learning point for us okay and so sort of rounding up uh what would you say is uh, africa's future in artificial intelligence Um, in terms of looking looking at now and then looking at the future all right yeah i think um looking at africa i mean the characteristics that this continent has um are very unique and also very unique in terms of looking at the future of work and the future of um economic bases and the reason why this is is because in um in a couple of years 
runabout yeah. by 2030, yeah. Africa should have the largest workforce compared to any other continent, mm-hmm. right? And when you pair that with where artificial intelligence is, where we're past the point where the most important aspect of the field is research and um, and theory and philosophy, yeah. where we now need practical implementations of the technology for it to be valid and then also to be able to, to, to learn to advance as well. Yeah. So these implementations of the technology require problems, right? Yes. Yes. And Africa is a, is a continent As that is full ro- of problems. Yeah, exactly, full of problems. And then also, fortunately, because mm. of these problems, is full of innovators who are able to think without even the need to romanticize it. Yes. Think well enough to solve those problems and keep it going. Yeah. And if you multiply that with the amount of people, which is 1.5 billion mm by 2050 who will be in the workforce in Africa if you multiply that versatility and that curiosity and that willingness to just solve problems on the fly with the actual workforce that mm-hmm. this continent presents to the global economy yeah. then you understand why Africa is perfectly placed to contribute the most important part of artificial intelligence yes. at the point at which it is right now okay and um, how can people get in touch with you in case they want to work with you, collaborate on projects? All right. Uh, you can reach out to me on my personal website, that is babusinyoni.com, mm-hmm. or you can reach out on the agency website, which is www.triple.black. I have to put the www because people think it's <laughs> triple.black.com. Yeah. Uh, it's Um You can find me on Twitter at my first name, last name, and LinkedIn at my first name. Okay. Any last words? Um, thank you very much, Kenya. I've had a wonderful time here and I'm um, looking forward to coming back um, soon, sooner uh, than soon, actually, because I heard it's mango season in six weeks. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hope to have you back at that time. <laughs> thank you. Cool. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. That was it for today's episode. See you next time. The AI Kenya Podcast, powered by What's Good Studios.